So tonight, two for one deal. Two sermons and one for I'll be tonight. So Josh and I will be giving a short lesson, each of us, tonight, and hopefully uh, beneficial for everyone here tonight for you both, for us both. Our lives are so busy. We all have so many demands for our time. Our society seems to measure a person's success by how busy they are. We all have commitments. We all have activities that are important to us that take up a lot of our time. We have family, we have work, school, recreation, entertainment, and many other things that can make up that, that list. But uh, my son Joel, almost every day, I would say, um, usually close to bedtime, he looks at his watch and he says, oh my, why does time go so fast? And then he gets up and takes about a 45 minute shower before he goes to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and talking with my friends and coworkers, it seems that a lot of them, uh, they're always so busy traveling uh, from here or there, uh, going to sports tournaments for their kids. Not that those activities are, are bad or and a lot of these activities that I mentioned here uh, are good things to be involved in. But you know, as I thought about how busy we all are, how busy I am, I really had to think about you know, where does God and where does Jesus Christ fit into all this? And so tonight, I'd like for all of us to consider uh, this one question. That is, is Christ preeminent in my life or is he just prominent? We just mentioned a lot of important things in our lives. Um, but is Jesus just one other important thing in our life or is he the most important thing in our lives? That's what I'd like to look at this evening. I'd like to break this down really into three points, three questions. What does preeminent mean and how is Christ preeminent? What should the preeminence of Christ look like in our everyday lives? And if Christ is not preeminent in our lives, then how do we correct that? How do we get back to that? Let's go ahead and dive into this first point. What does preeminent mean? Obviously, that's not a word that we use very often in our conversations today. So obviously, the first thing that I like to do is go to a dictionary, Google it, and let's look at the textbook definition of what that word really means. The permanent means first, superior, or to be supreme, or surpassing all others, or the greatest. As we think about that term that I'm going to use throughout my lesson tonight, think about, is Christ first? Is he surpassing everything else in my life? Is he the greatest thing in my life? The textbook definition is great, but we definitely want to look at what God's word has to say about the definition, or how is Christ preeminent? And in my primary text uh, for this lesson is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. If you would, let's read that together. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him 
and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I'd like to take this passage and kind of break it down and look at some of the highlights of this passage that really talks about how is Christ preeminent. Well, first, Christ is preeminent because he is God. He is eternal. The passage says that he has revealed to us the essence of who God the Father is. Now, there is a word that's used in this passage, uh, actually twice, but the first uh, time in verse 15 is the word firstborn. I think that can be confusing for some people what that really means, but firstborn does not mean that Jesus is a created being or that he was created first. Instead, think of it in terms of the rights of inheritance for an heir and their rank or priority over others, the other sons. The phrase here, firstborn of all creation, really emphasizes Christ's preeminence, really, and the rank and priority over creation itself. Secondly, how is Christ preeminent? Well, he is the creator and sustainer. We see that here in this passage where all things were created through him and for him, and in him all things are held together. Christ is preeminent because he is the head of the church, which is the body of Christ. Jesus purchased the church with his blood, and we belong to him, and we are in submission to him because he is the head of the church. Lastly, he's preeminent because he's our redeemer through his resurrection. You know, it talks about how he is the firstborn from the dead. That is, he is the first to be resurrected, never to die again. And our hope for our own resurrection is made sure because of his resurrection. His new life guarantees our new life to come. Another passage that's uh, similar to Colossians chapter 1 talks about the supremacy of Christ is Hebrews chapter 1. Really, the whole chapter of Hebrews talks about Christ's supremacy and his preeminence. But I just pulled out a couple verses here, verses 2 and 3. It says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That last phrase you see there, where he's sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high, really gives us a picture of he's sitting on the throne. He's ruling uh, over all creation. He has all authority. Let's look at the second point of the lesson tonight. What should the appearance of Christ look like in our everyday lives? To help us with this, answer this question or to picture this in our minds, I've got two analogies I like for us to think about. This first analogy is this think of life as a rope or a cord with many strands. And if Christ is the core, strong strand in the center with all those strands wrapped around it, 
that's when the rope or the cord will be the strongest. That's the same for our lives. If Christ is in the center of our lives, if we wrap all the strands of our life around him, that's when our lives will be the strongest. And the other analogy that I like to, to look at is really from Scripture. The relationship between the church and Christ is described as a marriage relationship. The church being the bride of Christ and Christ being the bridegroom. A couple passages of Scripture that, that talk about this image of the church being the bride of Christ is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, where it talks about husbands ought to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, talks about uh, this marriage of the lamb and the bride and this married, great marriage feast of this lamb and bride, talking about Jesus and the church. So as I think about this relationship of marriage that helps us to think about our relationship with Christ, What's the bedrock foundation of a good, strong marriage relationship? Love, commitment, trust, and friendship. When you're married, what person do you think about the most? Or what person do you think about or talk to the most? Well, hopefully it's your spouse in that relationship. Well, the more time we spend with someone, the more time we get to know them. And the more we get to appreciate and love them for who they are. So that's the same for us with Christ and our relationship with him. But practically speaking, what does that look like in our everyday lives? I got a few questions here for us to think about to help answer this question about what does it look like in our everyday lives? How are we spending our time? Do we express our praise and thankfulness for God to others and to him? Do our conversations with others include talking about Jesus and our relationship with him? And how involved are you in others', others lives, helping and serving them? Let's look at this first question again. How are we spending our time? Are we intentionally and regularly spending time with Christ by reading, studying, and meditating on God's word? Are we communicating with him in, in prayer on a regular basis? Many Psalms talk about how the writers love God's laws and how they delight in them, how they long for his commandments and meditate on them day and night. And Psalm 119 is an example of that. I have to ask myself, do I have that same kind of desire and zeal for God's word? If Christ is preeminent in my life, I, I should. Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 7, the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. If Christ is preeminent in our lives, he should be in our minds all the time. Everywhere we go, we should be talking about him to our kids, to others. And we should love our God with all of our heart and our soul and our might. If Christ, lastly, the last point, if Christ is not preeminent in our lives, how do we correct that? I've got another analogy for you. 
So some of you may have had satellite TV at some point. My question for you who has experienced satellite television, what happens when a storm comes by? Well, you all have may, you probably can't read that very well, but uh, you may have seen this message pop up on your TV screen. Communication with a satellite has been lost or your signal has been lost, okay? Well, storms can cause you to lose the signal or maybe you need to realign that dish. Maybe the wind or the tr tree limbs or debris has moved it over time. If we don't make that effort to keep that aligned or in the right position, then they'll slowly drift away from the source and the signal. Or maybe for some of us who are a little older or maybe not as tech savvy as some others, maybe we've all experienced a TV with some rabbit ears, an antenna. Or maybe it's a radio with an analog tuner where you have to dial to tune in your favorite station. If you're trying to watch or listen to your favorite station or program, well, there might be a lot of static or interference. So what do you do? Well, you go up there and you move those rabbit ears or the dial to get the signal to come in better and to cut out all that interference in static. Sometimes to get a stronger signal, you may have to move the radio or the antenna to get, either get a better line of sight or just to get closer to the source. In a similar way with our relationship with Christ, and like this analogy here, I think you know, there, there's storms of life that interfere with our relationship with Christ and can cause us to drift away from him. That kind of reminds me of the parable of the sower as well. Think about uh, that story of how the seed that falls among the thorns, as Michael mentioned in his, his prayer just a moment ago, how those thorns grew up and choked out the seed and the plants. And Jesus goes on and explains that those thorns represent the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life that keep us from maturing and producing fruit. So again, how do we correct that? I think we can sum that up just in really two simple suggestions. We need to remove those things that are interfering with or choking out our relationship with Christ. And secondly, we need to draw closer to Christ. So my challenge to each of you tonight is to examine your hearts, take inventory of your lives, and be honest with yourselves when you ask this question, is Christ preeminent in my life? Does he reign supreme in my heart? If you're lacking in this, then maybe you need to reorganize your priorities, examine your priorities, and make those changes in your life to put Christ first. That's lesson one. Lesson two is up next, Josh. All right. Okay. Don't think of a banana. Everybody got a banana in there right now? Okay. Um, so what I'm doing is the war within ourselves. It's a constant battle throughout our lives that we're always going to have and that we're all going to have to live with. Being Christians, it's just part of our daily lives. It's part of everything that we think of, and it weighs on us. But from what you probably would have thought, is probably thought of something like this. And it's ironic because something that I found out is that the subconscious mind cannot understand negatives. It can't. If you say, do not think about a banana, a banana will pop into your head. If you say, do not think about an apple, it will pop into your head. 
Who comes with sin? It's something subconscious that can run in the background that you may not know about. It, it's almost like, some people may get this, some people may not, but the more tech-savvy people will understand is that Google Chrome is very resource-heavy. And it will run in the background, and it will exhaust your computer, and it will tear it down. But the whole point of this is that we need to set our eyes on things above. There are the sin that we struggle with, we should not think about. I mean, it's important to think about it to really understand what we're fighting. I mean, it's not like we're kids in this war and we're having a Nerf gun war. I mean, we're having a war for our souls. I mean, it's not something that's easily dealt with. Um, but kind of going along this is whenever you get taught how to drive, right? You, a lot of people will tend to look at the cars that are passing. But you always get taught, don't look at the cars. And it's just like running. You don't look behind you or else you slow down. If you look to the cars passing you, you will slowly drift into the other lane. There's no, it's just how our body works. Biological, it's how God made us. But it causes stress in the background. It causes stress pretty much all the time, but it builds, and it builds, and it builds. Until it becomes almost an idol. You worry about it so much that we just don't know how to get out of it. We, it just pulls us away from God. We're on the path, but if we look at the sin and we focus on that, we will drift towards it. So the whole goal of this lesson is to how to stay on track. Every stress, as Ryan did a pretty good job of grabbing most of my points, but um, every stress we trust to God. We should trust to God. And it's a hard thing to park your car and leave it there. It's, it's tough sometimes. But I think as for me, with heart surgery, it's something where I had to park my car. I could not do it on my own. I had stresses that I could not just have disappear. It was something that would come up inevitably. And sin is inevitable. And there's, everybody does it. We're human. But we strive our very best to get out of it, to remove ourselves from that sin. We try to focus on whatever is true, whatever is noble, and whatever is excellent. Just whatever is good, we should dwell on because we will drift towards those things. But something that we do have to understand is that every sin is enticing. Something that each person sins different. Each person has their own selfish desires. It's how humans work. 
why we sin. And I feel like most times um, we go back to it over and over, and we get disgusted with ourselves. And I was going through Instagram, Instagram probably a, was a while ago, but it was a video that came on my feed, and it was about a man. He was hunting, and year-round, I've, I've never hunted before, but from his story, he said that he would lay corn on the ground for, this, for deer to hunt. And each month, they'd lay down a patch of corn. The same day, the same time. Every single day, at the same time, the deer would come back, and it would eat the corn. Year-round. And finally, when it became hunting season for deer, it came back again. But when it came back again, it was finally time to strike for the hunter. It's just like Proverbs 26 and verse 11. When the dog returns to its own vomit. In your head, it's, it's so disgusting. I have a dog, and he, eats, he ate his vomit not too long ago, and it was disgusting. I mean, it was bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's just so gross. But I feel like sometimes we think to ourselves, man, why did I do this? And then sometimes, I think some people, it's human nature, point fingers, blame it. But as James 1, 13 through 18, I'll flip to it. And then in that verse, it's all about how we cannot blame God. As in verse, in chapter 1, in verse 15, it says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to to death. But in 13, it goes along to say that it is our own desires. When tempted, no one shall say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. It is our own selfish desires that tempt us. God never tempts us. Satan will. Satan will grab our desires, hold on to it, and make us hold on to it as well. You will tug and push and pull for just about any little thing that he can do to just pop up in your head. He'll do it without hesitation because maybe that time it'll break you. Maybe that time your guard is down. Just like Job, I think sometimes after we sin, and feel down. The battle of, you know, why did I do this? It's just like in Romans 7. Next slide. But it's a tug of war for our lives, throughout our lives. And in the verse, in Romans 7, verses 14. 25 says we know that the law is spiritual but i am unspiritual sold as a slave to sin i do not understand what i do for what i want to do i do not do but what i hate i do and if i do what i do not want to do i agree that the law is good 
As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. That's not all it says. I'll get to that later. I think when we sin, we can feel very down, very beat up, lost, or tempered, just unable to feel happy. But it's not the way to go about it. Of course, just like Jonah, we hid from God. But if we hide from God, it's not going to fix our problems. It never will. And we will be forced back into that place where we sin. We will be exhausted by that time. And if we are exhausted, Satan only has to throw one thing at us, and we're done. We're gone. We're going to be a slave to the sin. But there is hope. Now, the sin that we have, we may say, I can do this. I can overcome the evil one. I promise I will never do this again. Now, there's two major issues in this. One, I can do this. I can't fight my fight alone. That's the whole point of Jesus. We cannot, we need that friend. We need help. We need someone to push us. There's a reason that Jesus made the apostles go out in twos. It was the buddy system. If one of them gets down, the other one will pick them back up. I think it's a very important thing to have today even. That I think most people are too embarrassed to say, I have sin, and this is what my sin is, and I need somebody to help me. It's a very, very good thing to have. It's a very good thing to have that friend. And Jesus, we can always call upon to be that friend. But it is always good to have somebody physically here that we can tell, where we can get a very direct response. But... The other thing that's wrong with this is that I promise I will never do this again. Because, as we know, in Matthew 5.33, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. We will sin. It's inevitable. But we can never say a promise we cannot keep to the Lord. 
So what in turn we should do is say <laughs> I, Philippians 4.13 says it I can do all things through Christ who th strengthens me or you can use any verse to correlate with what you're struggling with and it goes back to the whole idea of the subconscious mind cannot understand negatives if we focus in our head on a verse that directly correlates with our sin, we can fight it. It's just, I mean, the Bible's been used as a sword. And I think it's one of the greatest analogies in the Bible. For me, because sword fighting is an art. It's not, I mean, some people were not very artful with it, say. But say the Japanese, samurai, they were very technical on how they used it. They were very precise. Their precision, precision was their point. And as a sword, you can use it on the side of the blade to slice. And you can even use the flat part as a brunt use of force that can shock the opponent. It could take the wind out of them. It'll take them time to recover. But the point of the sword is what deals the final blow, usually. It's the part that pierces through the skin, that really does it. But the word of God is our sword. It's what can wear down our opponents by slashing them. It's what we can use to give them a verse that'll hit them really hard. And they can realize what they're doing is wrong. Or... It, maybe they're, they're really thinking about Christ and they're really wondering about all of it. But all they need is the piercing through their heart of just one verse of the Bible. Just, just one is all they need. And all of these, I feel, are great. Joshua 1.9, it's all about courage. God is with us wherever we go. All of these are very good, and I think I will read all of them. So going back to Proverbs verse 3, if you want to flip, I have all these up here. Um, Proverbs 3 verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. That's Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7. Psalms has so many good verses. So many that can help us with our fight. And in Psalm 31, verse 24. Be strong. Take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. But there's one problem that everybody comes to. If we are not founded in Christ, 
and our belief is not solid, we will fall away. It's a fact. We will drift, and we will not come back. We will not have the love for God that drives us closer to Him. And without the love or faith for God, there is no reason to continue in hard times. None. It's zero. If, if you're working for a company, and you really hate your job, and they just give you a really hard project, it would just be so easy to say, you know, I'm going to look for a different job, I'll do this for a little bit, and I'll quit. I'll be gone. It'll be easier. But just like Jesus says, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. Pray it a little bit. But the whole point of this lesson is to draw near and dwell on what is good. Whatever will help you in your fight, think about these things. And close it out, I was listening to a podcast a while ago, not even that long ago, it was during work, it was called Unashamed, and I don't know if you guys have ever watched Duck Dynasty, but it's all the guys, and it's a pretty entertaining time, but they're, all their talks will end up spiritually, and it's very encouraging to hear what they say. <clears throat> but Jesse, he brought up a point because they were talking to the director of the show, The Chosen. And he was talking to him, and he was saying, you know, sometimes I don't understand the world. They read the Bible, and they, they have some factual evidence, and I think 99%, almost 99%, of scholars say that Jesus was real. He lived. He died. And there is, I mean, the Bible is the best evidence for all of it. I mean, it's God's word. But some people just don't believe it. <clears throat> and Jesse was saying that, you know, I don't understand these people because, you know, if Satan's biggest weapon is death, and he doesn't even control that, why would you be on his side? There's no reason for it. And we all know the good side wins. It's just like in every movie or TV show. <clears throat> the good guys almost always win. It's just how we want things to turn out. But some people can't see the spiritual realm. And some people cannot see the importance of it. So I leave you with a story. There was a guy, there was a man, sitting on a fence. As he was sitting on this fence, Satan was on one side, God was on the other. They looked at him both, and they both walked away. And he was sitting on the fence, and he stayed there, and he was trying to choose a side of which to go on. <clears throat> and eventually, Satan comes back, and he's like, come on, let's go. And he was like, whoa. I didn't choose your side. I didn't choose God's side. But I definitely did not choose your side. But then Satan says the words of the fence is mine. I own the fence. So, 
you are on the wrong side, or if you are on the fence, if you understand that that fence, that barrier between you and God, is there, and you are doing the things that you know that are wrong, you can come forward now, and you can be baptized. And we will do it gladly. We'll do it happily. For angels will rejoice, and we'll rejoice here. But if you want to be baptized, or if you have any spiritual needs that you have, please come now. Please come forward now as we stand and sing.